0: Greetings, March Mad Men listeners. This is part two of our Session 9 versus Oculus episode. So you're about to hear a discussion of Oculus, the final debate, and the outcome of this matchup. Buckle up. As I recall, this ride gets pretty bumpy. So we're back, and without further ado... Hop in the uh, the old standby, a wolf pup. Uh, you guys did you reprovision or what's uh, what are your beverages right now? Vic?
1: I did reprovision but I had one of the big uh, uh, 375 milliliters of brother Thelonius. I don't have a bottle to open. I was just uh, finishing off the last bit of that. so uh, I am, I am silently
2: cheersing uh, you guys. Well in that case Vic, this one's for you.
0: Nice. very nice. Mm, Nice LaCroix.
2: The can can of the Beach Retreat IPA, a collaboration between Beachwood Brewing from uh, Long Beach and uh, unofficial sponsors of the show, Pizza Port Brewing Company.
0: Wow. (laughs) You are loyal, my friend. Pizza Port always makes an appearance on this pod. We should at least be getting six packs of
1: beer from somebody,
2: right? Yeah, I agree. That would be
1: fair. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, and, And... an Emmy, a six-pack of beer, we, we need to step it up.
0: Yep. I would settle for the beer.
2: A Webby? <laughs> Do we get Webbies for podcasts?
0: Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. God damn it. All right. Well, let's go earn another award right now with our amazing commentary on Mike Flanagan's Oculus. I am looking forward to The Haunting of Bly Manor. It's probably been out for a year by the time you're listening to this, but uh, it's his follow-up to uh, Haunting a Hill House, and I think it should be on Netflix before too long. And I I was just thinking, I haven't seen Before I Wake either, so I want to watch that. But uh, yeah, I'm on board with the flan, man.
1: I think one of the things, especially as regards historical significance, we'll have to see what the director of Terrified does – Flanagan is is really the only director of any significance left in this competition.
0: Who's alive? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right.
1: Or uh, even, I mean, I mean, obviously, well, Del Toro. Brad, Anderson, right. Brad Anderson's still alive. Well, Del Toro didn't I mean uh, Juan oh, Antonio yeah, he Bayona. Lost.
0: He lost. Yeah, Bayona is still around. Yeah, right.
1: Bayona's still around, but he's not. You know, he, he he's still. I'm sure he's still working. But Flanagan, like of the of the remaining directors. Flanagan's really the only one. I mean, Brad Anderson. We didn't really talk about sort of the work that that he's done since then. Certainly, nothing that's really blown me away.
2: Right. He's a big TV guy now.
1: Yeah. Lake Mungo. Even Mm -hmm. David Tui with Below the Orphanage, Terrified. You know. I mean, it's it and and Kubrick. I mean, there's really. uh, Yeah. What has that guy done lately? Yeah. Right. (laughs) It is kind of wild. Kubrick, yeah. Kubrick is a, is is obviously a, a you know one of the great filmmakers of all time. I don't think Flanagan's on that level, but in terms of filmmakers that critics and audiences and, and horror fans are oh god, what's Mike Flanagan doing next? John, you just said it. I can't wait mm-hmm. to see uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor. I feel the same way, and I'm again I'm curious to see what the director of Terrified does next. But I just think that is this is one of those films that we talked a lot in. The Pact and uh, some of these other movies, oh, like this should have been the first movie that really launched somebody and then they kind of didn't do anything. Lake Mungo, same thing. Right. Here at least is, a, is a, a, a significant film that really did launch a director onto a career that is still impacting the genres, had a, a, an, an impact in film in general.
0: Well, I mean that is a really interesting observation in the sense that this entire tournament has the universe of haunted house movies at its disposal, and we've narrowed it down to eight and one of these guys is like a promising figure for the future in, in the genre um, i mean not to not to rule anyone out or anything, but you know like an exciting important uh, top of mind name right now in the genre. That's sure. that's wild. That's wild.
2: Yeah, ba- based on current evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't expect that when we boil down this, you know, fairly large subgenre down from you know we were talking about sixty some movies and then it's thirty and now we're we're down to eight and um, the the greatest, the greatest, the best of the best. One of these filmmakers is like an you know an exciting figure moving forward right now.
1: I think it speaks to just the, the lightning in a bottle that sometimes happens in the genre. Yeah. That it's, you can pull together great filmmakers and, and, and great actors and, and all those other elements that would seem to make a great horror film. And sometimes it's just gotta be a coked up to Toby Hooper, you know, in a farmhouse with a, a chainsaw and a bunch of raw meat. Like, it's really hard to quantify what makes a great horror film, which I guess is what we're is what we're up to. But yeah, it seems like there's a lot of chance that goes into landing a film this far in in this tournament. I'll be really curious to see if it plays out similarly when we get into other subgenres.
2: Well, I will say, Vic, I actually feel like in digging for historical significance on this film, that that is. A big position that this movie holds is being the, you know, the arguable launching pad for Flanagan's career, at least in terms of like the the modern horror fan.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think this it's fair to say this is Mike Flanagan's first classic, and each of his movies has its place and a role in advancing the career that we're witnessing. But uh, even though it's his breakout, I I would think it's fair for me to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, but I don't think this movie has a huge following compared to horror classics, and it's not really being touted all that much, certainly well regarded and respected as it very fucking well should be, but like Session 9, it didn't kick off a movement in horror or become a template for aspiring filmmakers, and now we're all rolling our eyes as people you know oh god it's this guy's oculus i would say it's still kind of under the radar as we record about seven years after its release can it in the future earn a greater niche in the horror hall of fame i, I think so i think it's worthy and i think if flanagan's career tra- trajectory continues upward perhaps its long-term audience will dwarf that of session nine I think Flanagan is certainly far more relevant uh, in 2020 than Brad Anderson for what that's worth, Uh, you know, fairly or unfairly. And maybe they have different ambitions at this point in their lives. But people will continue to discover Oculus. And I think they're going to be inspired by what they see. This movie has more upside, if you will, than Session 9. But right now, I think it's even more of a dark horse in terms of its current following.
1: Would you say that... Of the 32 films we initially picked, the two with the greatest historical significance are probably The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think that's fair. Rich, what do you think of that? With the greatest historical impact? Well, in terms of like following or like the amount of um, – like I, I keep – we I think I keep coming back to it, but I, th- I think we all are, like the idea of spawning imitators. And I, I think that that would be fair. Certainly paranormal activity is Fairly the paranormal
2: activity, that's, I'd, I'd say it's pretty hard to argue the that the influence of The, the Shining would outweigh – or am I missing some of the judging criteria? Because I'd say the Shining like far outweighs like, the Conjurer.
1: No, that's true. That's true. You're right.
0: I agree. Uh, I agree. I mean, that's like... Yeah. It's sort of there's two kinds. I mean, oh, look, there's more than two ways to yeah. look at historical significance. But I mean, I think one of them is: do people were they so influenced by it that they're imitating it? I think that's the obvious. And then, yeah, the other way to look at it is like: just do we all agree how important this movie is? Do we all watch it? Do we all love it? Do we all keep quoting it? Like, not not directly, like the the memes and everything of of, of The Shining. Like you don't you don't rip off The Shining, but like. We, we we quote it, we we you know, we all understand the sort of the, the vernacular of the shining, even if you don't even like horror movies, right? So that would be historical significance too.
1: And it's well and it's certainly like if you're a horror fan, you have to have seen The Shining.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, that's the that's your that's your your baseline education in horror is you know, the
0: Exorcist, the Shining Halloween. I think Rich's point is, yeah. I think it's by far the most historically significant movie in our in our competition. If you look at like the true meaning of historical Battle. significance, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: All right. <laughs> I just want to throw just uh, circling back to, to something you were just saying, John, with regards to Oculus specifically. I was pretty surprised to find a lot of reviews and explorations of the film from the time period that it was released. Followed by comment after comment of people, not only from the time that the movie came out, but up until the present, with people just saying that this movie is overrated, that it's overhyped, Hmm. that that it's oversold, that the review is wrong. And and sure, these are just people commenting on the Internet. So we're not exactly talking about the highest comment denominator. But – still just like overwhelmingly i feel like the voice for this film was very negative in a way that was so persistent that it made me start to question my views on the film
1: even i made the note because going through some of the the critics the the you know the actual film critics talking about it an awful lot of them complained that it wasn't scary which i really radically disagree with i do too
0: I was just looking through my my notes about this movie, and one of the funny things was the conservative common sense media gave Oculus four stars at the time and said, outstanding horror flick has gore, children in peril. But, I mean, it, it did seem like a, a funny – like, a, I wouldn't expect – something like a parental watchdog with a, you know, potentially Christian leaning to to give this movie four stars, but they did and then I did find this review, which I I will read just for the sake of um, the references that the guy makes. This was Brian Telerico from 2014. The flashbacks in Oculus have a depressing fatalism because we're told who will live and who will die early on, turning these scenes into an exercise in inevitable gore. The lack of suspense is more disheartening when one realizes that the hole hasn't been filled by any sort of social context at all. Films like The Shining and the Amityville Horror also trafficked in the inevitable, but grounded their narratives in cautionary tales of how familial stress and other external factors like alcoholism can destroy a patriarch.
1: So one of the thoughts that I had as I was going through some of the criticism was that, Rich, your criticism of The Shining is that it feels a little cold, right? It's a little distant, like you said that you can you can appreciate the things that are that are great about it, like you said, it, but but it's not so much that you enjoy it, and I feel like this movie. While it doesn't reach the heights of *The Shining* in in lots of other ways, it's not a cold film. It doesn't have that distance. It feels deeply invested in the characters, or I, I don't know. I, again, that's one of those sort of ineffable things that it, it's a little it's a little difficult to quantify. But this doesn't, even though it tells a similar story, it doesn't have that that cold, you know, Cronenbergian. Feeling to it that I feel like The Shining does. Does that sound? Does that sound right to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that this film has the earmarks of of Flanagan, you know, which I think are can both be seen for better or worse in in all of his films. Which is that there's an element of pop to this movie, and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. I just mean that it's it's bright, it moves fast, you are invested in the people involved. Like it is there to wrap you up in a ghost story, throw some, throw some some uh, some scares at you, and make you feel like you were really like part of the journey. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. I think that this movie is is in in some ways like a fundamental, you know, artistic opposite from what you're describing in The Shining.
0: It is a movie for people that don't necessarily love the shining in some ways. <laughs> I think that's that's reasonable so food for thought uh rich, does this movie make you think? I mean, what are the things that you that you're intrigued by or that you ponder about this movie after you've seen it?
2: I'd say the biggest food for thought in this movie and and this movie is not the deepest well in terms of food for thought. I don't believe. John, this might even be from the same review that you were just mentioning a moment ago, but, but I remember seeing comparisons drawn to, oh, it's just another one of those haunted item movies, uh, Mm -hmm. such as Annabelle and the conjuring and, you know, no offense to Annabelle and the conjuring, but I think that there is a certain level of mystery here in terms of what is the mirror? What does it want? How does it operate? Um, the the scenes like the, the the ones where you know that we point out before where you know like the the brother and sister find themselves you know arguing only to realize later that the mirror had manipulated them into into pointing the cameras at each other and rearranging the room really open up a lot of mysteries about what is this thing and how does it do its thing and, and what does it want and those are the questions that I think you're you're left lingering I. With in terms of like the, the the familial drama and how that plays out with you know obviously we know that like uh, sorry I'm forgetting her name but but Karen Gillum's character you know they they toy with the idea very briefly that like oh is like is she actually crazy and is is the brother imagining things like none of those little threads actually play out to to very much for even more than a scene or two so it's not like they give you a whole lot to speculate on there. The one thing you're left wondering is what is the evil in this movie, and it's something that I don't feel like is necessarily answered by the by the end. But I, I don't know. Did, is that something that piques y'all's interest? Well,
0: yeah, Vic.
1: Yes, I mean, I, I. Well, it's one of those things where I think that Flanagan made the right choice in in leaving that out. I weirdly came across the phrase Lovecraftian a couple of times in describing this movie because it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot of mystery and that's the one that's sort of the one thing that they leave hanging there.
0: Well yeah, I mean I think the main mystery is the mirror and you know, how did it come to be this way? What are its long term aspirations? Um, who built the thing? <laughs> <I'm> sorry, <laughs> it's long-term aspirations.
1: It, it wants it wants an ego, uh, John. It wants an ego. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, like I can't say that I'm kept at night wondering about these things, no. but this is all that the movie sort of gives you to speculate about. I mean, I'm I'm not necessarily wondering what life is like for the poor victims who are, are now in its thrall or what a sequel might look like if we keep following the poor doomed survivor of this after he's framed again but i can't say that like i shouldn't be thinking about those things because i think it gives you something to chew on and it's worth considering and it is left somewhat undefined which is somewhat humorous after our lengthy debate about the last movie is that i think you know there's an equal amount of ambiguity about the the evil force like as far as exactly what's going on with it and a lot of the traditional i would say cliche and formulaic aspects of mythology are eschewed here meaning like what does it want how do you stop it who created it? You know, like just very yeah. basic fundamental things.
1: I will say the one element of mystery in here that doesn't work, and we talked about this a lot the last time, but it's worth especially as it compares to session nine, is the the moment when the adult Brendan Thwaites has that that moment where he he sort of encounters and looks at the younger version of himself – who seems to acknowledge that the older version of himself is in the doorway. That feels like the one sort of weird breadcrumb that doesn't really tie into the rest of the story. Rich, I feel like you had a, had a big issue with that scene in the last podcast, the last discussion of this film. Am I remembering that correctly?
2: Yeah, I mean, that was more of an issue of like, I felt like in terms of, Speaking of a, a director having a, a clearly defined logic, that was a moment where I felt like there was a lapse in the, in the logic that was executed through the rest of the movie. I mean, Exactly. To, to me, like this, this kind of goes back to the like the, the pop analogy again, which is that this movie is not, you know, I, I would not call it shallow by any means, but I don't think that it goes it especially deep in terms of psychological territory and I think that the, because that's part of its goal is to open and close a story within its, you know, 90-something minute time span. And I think it successfully does that. It doesn't leave a whole lot of mysteries on the table. I don't think it wants to leave a whole lot of mysteries on the table. And, you know, I guess you can judge for yourself whether you find that to be a good thing or a bad thing.
1: Well, I've – and this ties into rewatchability as well, but I've been- – really enjoyed rewatching this film every time. And again, I rewatched I, I really enjoyed re-watching session nine as well. But there's something about parsing out what works in the execution. And I have just found that different things seem to frighten me or get under my skin each time. So there's there's different elements of it that seem to work. And something I read that I, I actually really wanted to, to throw by you guys that I hadn't considered, and now it's one of those things that makes you go, "Shit! I wonder." Now I sort of want to watch it through this lens. Somebody said this is this movie is a reverse a reversal of the vengeful spirit, the the sort of supernaturalist providence story, which we've talked about a lot, like the Changeling and uh, even Poltergeist and some of those kind of films. And uh, that, what
0: lies beneath, perhaps?
1: What lies beneath. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it's the humans that are vengeful, and justifiably so, right? It's them seeking revenge, seeking justice against the mirror, and there's something sort of twisted about the fact that in Flanagan's universe, at least here, and I think it is not true in a lot of his other work, but here, his universe isn't interested in, in
0: justice. Well, it certainly doesn't deliver that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't gratify that that desire from the characters, and I think that's what makes the movie for me. Very frankly, is that this if this movie ended with the siblings beating the evil, high fiving and going on with their lives, I, I I don't think I would that like the entire house of cards would fall apart for me, and I would not necessarily find the movie notable. I think it's it's a brilliant decision. That this movie has a dark ending, and I was actually debating this with someone, uh, a friend of mine who I re- recommended the movie to, and she enjoyed it, and but she like it it, it bothered her that the movie was had had this you know non happy ending. Let's put it that way. And I said that 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 ending is what makes it work because if the mirror wasn't proven worthy in that regard if it was just another straw man to kind of be defeated on route to these characters catharsis i just it, it it wouldn't have the impact on me and i understand that we need sometimes horror movies to end you know have a happy ending i mean even the shining it can be certainly argued has a happy ending or amityville or whatever and i'm not like unlike the bullshit we'll get to it, I'm sure of the orphanage kind of ending. I'm not totally like, I want all the characters to die at the end of every horror movie, but I I really think that for me, and especially looking at all of Flanagan's films, the fact that this one has such a sad and disturbing and tragic and hopeless ending is a, is a big part of why I love this movie.
2: John, I agree with you, and I think that part of it is due to the way that he makes his films. There is a a touch of conventionality. Is that the word?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, there, there's there's an element of his films that is glaringly conventional, and, and again, I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but then when he turns on you and delivers you to a dark ending, there's a certain level of dissonance there. The event that initially is a little off-putting but actually over time adds an extra layer of depth to the film. So I agree with you completely. The first time I saw this film, I think I kind of had the reaction that your friend did where I almost couldn't make sense of the ending because it didn't seem to fit in with the rest of the film. It's only with repeated exposure to it that I've really come to grips with the fact that the ending I think makes this film in exactly the way you're describing
1: well, and I'm just thinking about it really in terms of the i'm going to say the subgenre as a whole, but I'm curious to see how it gets teased out in the genre as a whole because my gut reaction when we when John when you said that is those are the kind of movies I like that's what really attracts me to a movie is i you know the the world the universe is fundamentally chaotic, and the idea of a movie that rests on restoring some kind of order or moral justice usually doesn't appeal to me then I went back and looked at our our bracket here and it's really kind of an even split hmm. the devil's back hmm. the devil's backbone uh, which we again which made it to this round is very much about that as is the orphanage terrified I think falls in the other. Uh, sort of chaos camp. Session 9, certainly in the chaos camp. This one is too. But then you have Below, which is very much about order and, and sort of restoring it. And then Lake Mungo, which probably falls in the order. finding a more justified universe. But there's a little bit of ambiguity to Lake Mungo. Right. But nevertheless, that's not. it's not like when you get to the Evil 8, it's all... You know, darkness and and despair, and you know, an uncaring Lovecraftian universe. There's a there's actually a fair amount of that that made it this far. So it's not as it's not as definitive as I would have thought it would be in making these choices. Now we'll see what gets what gets through to the next round because obviously The Shining already toppled the uh, the Devil's backbone. But I'll be curious to see again not just how how it proceeds through this round. But when we get to the other genres, that always feels like a, a really defining characteristic of a great horror film to me. That I want a horror film that is not reassuring.
0: That's one of the, I mean, that's a fantastic insight, Vic, because that is one of the great choices that a filmmaking team, writer, director, uh, producers, you know, need to make is. How? what is the note that we end on and how do you define the story that precedes it is this a hereditary ending which is pretty fucking bleak or is it a dawn of the dead ending which is somewhat mixed but they get away they beat the odds they fly off, they have hope, they're in a helicopter who knows what tomorrow might bring and you know personally I, I think that I'm you know clearly because I, I, I was supporting Poltergeist earlier, which is a happy ending, and you know I, I, I think that that I, I really take it case by case. I don't. I'm not like lockstep. I want a dark ending or I want a happy ending. I just think it's. I think we I think we need both. And I think that 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 it takes more balls to have a dark ending, so maybe I'll give it a little bit of a leg up or extra credit if you do that because you're you're playing with fire in the sense that a lot of audience members are you know dissatisfied with that or they feel, you know, they don't want to walk out of a movie feeling that way. But I think that Sometimes it's the right choice to, to go with an uplifting ending, however that looks in that movie. So, But I think this is an interesting thing that we should always keep in mind is because is I think it is one of the key choices that anyone makes in a horror film is that uh, where do we leave the audience at the end of it?
1: And worth noting that, that Flanagan as a filmmaker seems like he tries to, to walk a tightrope on that. Mm-hmm. as he certainly did with Ouija Origin of Evil. That's what I'm reminded right. of, is that, John, you were so put off by the appearance of the father in the film, and yet the sisters remain, you know, one of them remains possessed. The other one winds up being sort of devoted to her. And, and now that we know more about where it lands in, in Ouija, but that, that he really wants to have it both ways as much as possible. My complaint about Oculus was that both of the parents have that moment of oh I can't I can't do this to my kids and sort of sacrifice themselves uh, to an extent on that on that love for their children that if there was a if there's a, a bright spot a moment of emotional uplift in a movie where both the parents get killed <laughs> right <laughs> that would that would be it I think that Oculus is his best attempt at this in terms of balancing some notion of emotional uplift that you don't walk out of the movie, just wanting to put a gun in your mouth, but also giving you the really dark chaotic ending that I think a really successful horror movie demands.
2: I agree with you, Vic. I can't can't help, but you know, as we're comparing this and, and session nine, just to like bring this back to the focus of the duo, like, it's a really interesting observation. I guess like you're saying, like this movie lends itself a certain amount of optimism to, to the grimness. But like, if we're talking about respect for a bleak ending, I would argue that session nine has a, has an inarguably uh, significantly more bleak ending. And I just to throw a, a comment out there that's, that's neither here nor there in terms of pitting these two against each other. The thing that John was saying really resonated with me with something I read with where Brad Anderson was talking about session nine and describing it as uh, an American tragedy and thinking about the fact that horror as a genre actually has this unique position of with, you know, not across the board, but with few exceptions being like the last bastion of what we think of when we think of like the Shakespearean tragedy. Like it is definitely the one genre where you can get away with an ending like you see in Session 9 or in Oculus and somehow still make it into a mainstream theater with that kind of ending. That yes. doesn't tend to happen in dramas or comedies or, or any other genres, mm-hmm. obviously some – you know, indie films notwithstanding. But that's one of the great
0: strengths of this genre is that it's so creatively free, like compared to action movies or romantic comedies or something like that.
2: Yeah. I think that, that the expectation of, of horror is to be something that, that makes you react in a visceral way and get you to peek into the darker corners of your imagination rather than trying to button up a story in a way that is just emotionally satisfying. And I think, Vic, one of the things you're putting your finger on is that this is a movie that actually manages to thread the needle and sort of do both in a way that you could consider a little bit watered down or incredibly effective, depending on your perspective.
0: We can have a whole podcast about horror as a genre, and I'm sure we will along the way. But, like, just the idea that this is a genre where – You can expose the darker truths. You can point out what is sick about our society. You can get away with a level of commentary or insight, the things that we don't want to come to grips with about our life, about our culture, about our country, and I think there's a tremendous value to that. So that's one of the things I love about the genre.
1: And it can make you want to fist fight your closest friends in a parking lot.
0: Vic, honestly, (laughs) if you say one more time that Session 9, they don't know what the fuck they're doing, I will meet you in that parking lot.
1: (laughs) I'll be there, John.
0: (laughs) And that would be a really sad and ineffectual flailing of fists, I have a feeling, unless you've taken some Krav Maga classes that I'm not aware of.
1: (laughs) Uh, I have a a punching bag in my backyard that I use sometimes, but... Okay. No, I, I would. It would It would still probably be an embarrassing <laughs> display Which we will stream live On YouTube for anybody who wants to see it Vic versus John In my yep. Halloween H2O t-shirt That I don't have yet But I will get for that For that fight
0: Yeah I'll get my $10,000 veneers Knocked out and we'll make $14 In subscriptions There you go yeah. three, <laughs>
1: three, 3 o'clock high Starring John <laughs> Evans and Vic Yeah
0: <laughs> Wow. Well, this is all like so fascinating. I wish like, you know, we could, we could continue, but we should probably stay on track in terms of our, our categories. And I, I would just add to the the food for thought notion that some of it is not entirely, I don't know what to make of in that, like, all right, well, how do you beat this thing? Sure. But then I also wonder, why does a young woman's body completely absorb the impact of this polarizing device and not damage the mirror? So the mirror wins like she's just like a girl standing in front of it. Uh, All it needed was a human body in the way to beat her plan. And then another thought is, well, so you couldn't say to some guys at home Depot, Hey, we'll give you each 500 bucks. If some combination of you six, can sledgehammer this mirror to bits. And I realized, like, they'll just keep pounding, like, in a little square around the mirror and never actually hit the mirror. Or would it have to talk them out of it in 15 seconds? Uh, because that's how long it would take them to rush into the room and want to earn their money. Because that's one of the things that happens with uh, the Thwaites character is that, like, he just kind of decides not to uh, hit it with the the chair so like i guess what i'm saying is some of the food for thought could be seen as picking the movie apart so you know more than marveling at its mysteries but but i do love the movie
1: one of my favorite details in the movie is that crack from the bullet that killed their father because it does reinforce the fact that the mirror is vulnerable it is not impervious. It has to defend itself and it has these tools to defend itself. But it really gives credence to the idea that maybe Karen Gillan has figured out this idea for how to actually defeat it.
0: Well, its power it's, is in manipulating us, right? But yeah. it, it doesn't actually have the power to block a bullet or something. It can only make you aim the bullet the wrong way. Right. So what happens there is that the guy, the dad gets hit and he, he, he's like propelled back into the mirror and that's what causes the the crack. Correct.
1: I believe so. I I can't remember if it's that or if the bullet travels through him and hits the mirror.
0: I think he was thrown back into it.
1: Either, either way. The point is that with that in mind, and that's, part of what makes the movie work so well is that it makes her plan really smart. Mm -hmm. You know, that she's, that she's clearly thought about it and thought, okay, I'm going to set the, this thing up first. And, and then I'll put the mirror that, you know what I mean? Because if she'd had the mirror up first and then she tried to set the thing up, it would, you know she would have set it up 3 feet to the left That's or whatever right. you know whatever the whatever the defensive thing is she really did everything right and just
0: still lost well in terms of yeah the idea that the timer is independent of human perception and so yeah. the idea that unless these people interfere with it because their perceptions are so altered and messed up and manipulated by the mirror this thing will inexorably—the timer and the heavy swinging uh, blade—will will destroy the mirror. I mean, that is that is genius, absolutely, Vic. And and but it but it's also a credit to the mirror, which I think is very cool that it manages to avoid that fate. Even though this doesn't
1: necessarily tie into it, but just as food for thought. The moment when she when she first uncovers it and she touches that scratch and says, I hope it hurts you every day. (laughs) Like it's again, it's the she's the vengeful human who wants revenge. This is what this is what the, the ghost wants for the person who murdered it. And to see that inverted really does give this movie some layers that I agree that the narrative is wrapped up in a in a way that is sort of neat in a way that The Shining or even uh, uh, Session Nine are not. But there's a lot of layers to this movie that really do make it something that's that's pays off uh, on subsequent watches.
0: Well, that's a that's an unconventional dynamic, and I'm really glad that you're bringing it up because I hadn't thought about it at all. But in a way. The mirror is Harrison Ford in What Lies Beneath or the, you know, kid who grew up to oppress and murder the orphans and the staff at the orphanage in The Devil's Backbone. But in this movie, that character wins.
1: Yeah. That's a that's a really interesting way of looking at it.
0: Yeah, it's very it's that's extremely dark where you flip the whole dynamic and the object the the deserving party who who should be the subject of revenge is the supernatural force and that is why revenge is not achieved and justice is not done.
1: And the and the victor it's 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 like if Jack Nicholson had killed Danny at the end of The Shining.
2: I mm-hmm. say, is there a way of viewing this movie where the mirror is the hero?
0: That's an interesting question. No, I don't believe so. I mean, because in the sense that... We don't have any sense of again, like the idea of a protagonist is you know what it wants you know or he or she, um, you know what they're trying to accomplish and in some way we can even if they're an antihero we can get behind that but but this thing, you know, only exists to eat and to feed and I don't I don't think we're necessarily. On its side, in in any way, even though, like, we have to respect its its power, and I, I do like that in a sense that, yeah, we don't sort of end this movie thinking that it's been demystified at all. Like, that's part of what makes the movie cool is that the the mystique of the mirror survives.
2: It's true. They 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 spend all of their Expository points, trying to delve into the family's history as opposed to the antagonist, which is an unusual move.
1: John, I don't want to—I don't want to step on your toes, but I feel like it might be time to move on to rewatchability. Mm-hmm. One of the things I uncovered in my research about this film is that there's a Bollywood remake,
0: and uh, Flanagan produced it.
1: Yes, and so in terms of rewatchability. Does my wanting to watch the Bollywood remake count?
0: <laughs> I would say so because even now I'm not that interested. <laughs> 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 I'm impressed.
2: <laughs> I really want to see the Bollywood remake I of Oculus. See, I want to see the Bollywood remake. Okay, if this movie makes it on for the next round, instead of watching Oculus, we'll just get we'll just take a bunch of edibles. And watch the Bollywood remake of Oculus.
0: Uh, nah, I'm not going to vote for that. All right,
1: Rich, I will. I will take edibles and watch the the Bollywood
2: Oculus with you. Right. We'll do that. My birthday is coming up. Yes. There you go.
0: That could be a bonus screening. Bonus pod. <laughs>
1: Content. It's just it's just a live stream of me and Rich stoned oh. out of our
2: minds watching <laughs> S- the Bollywood. Reading.
0: Sinking into a couch. <laughs> <laughs> so Rich, uh, what are your thoughts on the rewatchability of Oculus?
2: I mean I, I feel like this movie actually has a fairly high rewatchability level for me. You know, one of the one of the the, the poll quotes that I that I flagged for this, and forgive me for not remembering where it came from is uh even while oculus plays by the book in individual moments it manages to invert a shrewder context for the events in question it's not the scenes that matter so much as the way that they do and don't fit together it uses subjectivity like a weapon like yeah this sort of distills what i think makes this movie interesting and what has made subsequent viewings of it more compelling to me than, than even when I first saw it is that the parts of it that didn't work became more and more compelling with with every viewing because of the way that he plays with time and because I think that it's done with a fairly deft hand despite a few missteps. It's a very ambitious level of storytelling to do these past and present tales told through child and adult actors in a high stress situation and playing them out in sort of parallel timelines it's just like there's a lot going on in this movie in terms of the 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 horror of it all and everything that we've discussed so far with regards to the supernatural and there's still a fairly compelling family story at the at the heart of it but on top of all of that you also have a pretty rich screenplay going on in terms of how you're going to unpack these two stories that you're trying to tell. And that to me is the thing that keeps giving with this film and only adds to my enjoyment of the the grim ending that the film eventually reaches. So To me, I'm excited about the idea of of watching this movie again, even when I just catch scenes of it. uh, I'm immediately gripped by the horror of it, even when I know what's going to happen. So this one ranks pretty high for me.
0: Yeah, for me too. Uh, Vic, what are your thoughts? We talked about
1: Poltergeist as the bridge for normies into horror. This feels like the next step. Like this would be something that I – am really trying to figure out in my head how to get convince my wife to watch this mm-hmm. because those family dynamics are so rich and interesting and something that you can invest in. And she's gonna be super mad at me when it when it ends.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But this does it, not end like the orphanage, where you're like, "Oh, that was really sweet." I'm kind of crying.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's it's not it's not like that.
2: So <laughs> let, let's be real, Vic. She'll be asleep.
0: <laughs> well, that's <something laughs>
1: that's true too. It, it feels like a movie that I want to recommend to people that are right on the edge of horror fandom. Mm-hmm. That if you just need something to tip you over from seven. To A Nightmare on Elm Street This is the This is the the straw you put On that side of the seesaw That helps you see Oh shit, okay, this can be really Fun and interesting And character driven And you can be emotionally invested But also terrified out of your mind This is a movie that has Maintained its, its Scariness through Multiple viewings And has even grown in that there are parts that have gotten scarier as I've watched it more and started to understand it a little bit more. And like the shining, this is one of the few movies that watching it really creates the sense that you might be losing your mind. You're, you're so, you're so invested. You're watching people basically going crazy and it's executed in such a way that that really comes through the screen and feels like it might be getting a hold of you. That's like one of the scariest things you can do in a movie. Uh, and I can, you know, I can tick off on, on you know, fingers and toes the number of horror movies all time that can do that. And so that's a that's a real accomplishment. And you wait for that to sort of wear down and I'm just saying through this process it that hasn't worn down it's only gotten richer I find this my this movie very rewatchable
0: well the idea of questioning your own perceptions and not being able to trust what you see as as reality and, and the decisions that you make based on that is is I think a you know profoundly chilling and for various real world reasons and understandable and relatable thing that, yeah, this movie uh, taps into very effectively. So that's a that's a really good point. So you have a seesaw and you're, you're just putting like straws on it and it just gradually tips one way or the other. <laughs> is, is that what you're the metaphor there? I loved it. <laughs> Analogy? Uh,
1: yes, I think I think I was leaning toward the straw that broke the camel's back, but the seesaw mm-hmm. made more sense, and I just I just jammed mm-hmm. them together, John. Yeah, I dig like it, like a like a like a happy ending in a horror movie. I just pounded them together.
0: <laughs> I appreciated it. So honestly, guys, I I might give this movie the edge over Session Nine in rewatchability, in that like based on your criteria, it's a really fun watch. And I'm not done with it in any way. And I think the movie gives the horror fan more in terms of red meat and visuals than, than Session 9. I think it's fast-paced, it's entertaining, it's filled with various forms of eye candy. And yes, Karen Gillen is in that category, for those of us that uh, that, 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 that like that kind of thing. Session 9 is crushed in terms of its female factor. It's, it's also a movie that I freely and enthusiastically recommend to others. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. This movie will play, I think, to anyone who watches it. There's nothing dated, cheesy, esoteric, or other, otherwise embarrassing about the movie. So it has a very high rewatchability score. Other than, do I think watching this movie over and over, for me, will unlock profound new levels of understanding and appreciation No, I do not. And as I think I've stated this evening, compared to Session 9, the level of maturity and insight into human nature and the unfathomable imponderables of life and masculinity and our darker natures are not here. Yes, this is more of a popcorn film. This is more of a a, a fun ride, even though it, it transcends the limitations of that. In, in, in many ways. For scoring at home, I'm giving it an edge over session nine in terms of rewatchability. So any other thoughts on that or should we get to our final verdict?
1: John, I'm not sure I understand. Could you talk a little bit more about session nine and how it illuminates those things? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am
0: sure you are not serious. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to indulge you Vic, but I, I know you don't want me to continue to bloviate about that.
1: John, uh, I, I absolutely do and I look forward to you bloviating uh, <laughs> off off mic uh, together over a over a beer at a bar someday.
0: You know, in twenty twenty five I think we yeah. might <laughs> we, we might just do that. Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right, Rich, are you ready to cast your final verdict?
2: Uh, I was born ready
0: <laughs> all right well give us give us a convincing argument for why your winner is
2: yeah, sure, my vote's gonna be no surprise by the way,
0: rich, I love that you're trying to sound conflicted. Thank you, buddy. thank you
2: well, look in all in all fairness, I gave session nine a vote to even get to this round because. Mm-hmm. I was invested in the arguments that you guys have made for it, and I've you know gone on record saying that I found the the arguments that other people make for the movie to be really engaging. I think there's a lot to be appreciated in that film, but for me, there's a reason why rewatchability is at the end of our scorecard in this round, and that ultimately, that is a defining quality in terms of how good is this movie and how much value does it actually hold to the genre is how much do you want to go back and experience it again and as intriguing as i can find the points of of session nine i think it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that oculus is a movie that it seems like would draw anyone in this group back to watch it again before session nine Not a dig against Session 9. It seems like it's got a lot going for it. But (laughs) when you're seeking a movie that is the greatest, don't you want one that you want to experience again and again and again? Isn't that the point of this competition?
1: Rich, you sound so much like you're giving out a rose in The Bachelor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) I know. That was so diplomatic. I love it. (laughs) After by the way, boring. I want yeah exactly. I want to the, the record should show that Rich in a text message called Session Nine pretentious garbage. Am I am I right?
2: <laughs> I, think I called it a pretentious slog. Yes, I that's told, what,
0: sorry. Yes,
2: it was it was both Session Nine and The Shining Earth. Are alike in the
0: fact that they are both pretentious slogs. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, made,
1: which made me laugh out loud in my kitchen, Rich. I want you to know. That.
2: I mean, you know, look, in in the spirit of the competition, I'm trying to find the the value in both of them. <laughs> um, and I don't. And look, I never like fully hate any film. I love the rough edges of Session Nine. I like the fact that it's like that. It's that it's weird and and kind of like cagey and feels a little fly by night. All the stuff that, that, that Vic was sort of calling out and uh, that I agreed with in terms of making it a weaker film of feeling undefined. Like, uh, I like the fact that it, it feels a little loose, but at the end of the day, it's not any fun to watch and the acting feels a little artificial. And Oculus is a, is a roller coaster. It's a slick thrill ride that delivers it every single turn. And good God, who doesn't want to experience that again?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, Rich, I think you've you've definitely given us a a statement that is true to the the spirit of this competition, which is personal. And it's based on, yes, what what do we want as a part of our life in the very finite time that we have on this planet? And (laughs) (laughs) as we are frequently reminded – Uh, These days, so um, I appreciate your your candor, and uh, that's okay. That's great, and I think I should, for in the sake of being the quasi producer of this show, I know that I need to go next so that Vic can cast the deciding vote. And I will say that I love both these movies, but Session Nine is in my pantheon. And Oculus is probably always going to be Pantheon adjacent at best. And that's not a fucking insult, man, because I've seen a lot of movies in my life. The Pantheon is sacred. It's a sacred, grotesque cow. Um, So (laughs) 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 adjacent is still the Beverly Hills of my esteem. I guess that puts the movies in the Pantheon in the Hollywood Hills or Malibu or I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) I don't think Oculus is junk food by any means. But I think that Session 9 is a tortured meditation on masculinity, mental illness, guilt, and real universal human fear. Whereas Oculus is a clever and fun game to play with the audience that definitely has some deeper and more disturbing elements but the themes are more in the background and the themes are in the foreground for me with session nine and that doesn't make it less of a killer haunted house movie which is a subgenre of horror that i think allows for psychological depth and a slower pace and more narrative oddity so i'm not sure that oculus fully takes advantage of that and its quest to be a commercially successful film aimed at viewers in their 30s and younger for this field of films and the competition that we're having right now i think session nine is kind of the best of both worlds that said it's close enough that i'm not going to strangle you two when you vote the other way so that's my um and it's hard to strangle two guys at once. Like I would have to really be on some PCP or something. So
2: uh, it's not as hard as you think, John. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you, you do it all the time. <laughs> all right, Vic, take us home.
1: <laughs> I I first just want to say uh, as a, as a fan of 2001: A Space Odyssey and AI, artificial intelligence that I defend pretentious slogs as films, and I I don't think that's necessarily a knock.
0: By the way, Vic, uh, that's a wonderful reminder of that Icelandic film that you pushed on us. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. I enjoy a pretentious slog. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine that you feel that way. I'll see you in the parking lot at 3 o'clock. But, John, I want you to know that I truly went into this round thinking, all right, I'm going to vote for Oculus. And as I was doing the research and as I was sort of uncovering some of those elements and really thinking about the, the movie, uh, it really came much more into question. Uh, and hmm. then you dug in your heels like a pretentious dick and
0: now <laughs> Oh, so it's my fault.
1: It's your fault. John. I talked
0: I talked you out of Session 9. No.
1: I, I Like I said, I I feel essentially the inverse that you do. Session 9 is a is a really frightening film and has some of those same characteristics like The Shining, like Oculus of Instilling in me this sense that maybe I don't know what's real, and that's really one of the things that terrifies me. And John, I think it's something that you and I share. We talk about asylums and insanity and, and that as a trigger or push button for what really gets under our skin in horror films. I think that's something that you and I share. Yeah. And so Session – both these films get that out of me. But I do just agree with Rich. Oculus is – it's what I want out of a, out of a haunted house film. If, if we're trying to identify what should advance to the next round, whatever it is, again, if it's just something ineffable that I can't quite put my finger on, it's really tough. This is a, this is a really tough choice, but I do cast my
0: vote for Oculus. Well, you guys are a voting block, and I believe this is the third or fourth time that you've outvoted me. Fuck you! Um, you
1: guys, you guys voted me out on our point. That's true. And and the woman in black.
2: Wow, we're still holding a grudge about our point. God, that was a-
1: Rich, you're the you're the you're the Justice Kennedy in this Supreme Court.
2: <laughs> that's Wait, true. I
0: I think that this is the one that I'm the least angry about being outvoted. So. That's definitely a credit to, to Oculus, if not your um, sensibilities about movies. No, just kidding. No, it's 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 fine. I, I think I you know, I, I was talking myself into it the whole time, but I just think that Session Nine is a movie that it's it's just going to have a, a place in my heart. That I don't think Oculus is going to get to, but I certainly think Oculus is, a, is is a special movie, and I'm I am looking forward to giving it to a loving giving it its loving autopsy. So I'm not going to start screaming profanities at you, but yes, Vic, I will see you in that parking lot. You son of a bitch.
1: I mean, this should all just evolve. Really, our climactic episode should just be a fist fight. Yes between yeah. the, between the three of us and that's how we figure out what the the ultimate winner is.
0: Just an extraordinarily clumsy fistfight in a in a <laughs> sun-drenched parking lot in Los Angeles.
1: That's it. Yeah, Fight Club. Ow, my, it's my fucking ear, man.
0: <laughs> Wait, timeout, timeout, timeout.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> I just like, honestly like going into the, you know, as we get closer and closer to the 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 final four uh whatever we're going to call that final four i don't feel like i have like a a breakaway winner like i i feel like there Hmm. there's so much to be weighed at this point like all the films that we're putting up there are all really approaching the genre from from very different points of view and i know we're not there yet but i am really torn about how the the next round is going to go
0: Yeah, me too. I mean, I think that, yeah, that's a really good point that, that none of these movies are sort of like doing exactly the same thing. And we can just say, well, this one does that a little bit better. And I think that that does speak to the diversity of style and approach that you get within something that you would think is such a restrictive subgenre as the haunted house movie, but that's definitely not the case. Like these are, really unique and different and cool movies. So it's going to be fun to try to parse it out.
1: Well, and I want to say too, just about this recording in particular, like I feel like we are finally getting to a place where we're having conversations about what this subgenre reveals about the genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. That, there are some really meaningful ideas and themes that are going to carry over into future seasons and future subgenres and those kinds of things that that's really why I wanted to do this you know it's it's not because I wanted to spend thirty five minutes talking about how Sue and uh let's scare Jessica to death and you know <laughs> like but but That there is, there are things that we take from these conversations into the next round, and then there are things that we take from that round into the next round, and that when we get to this point and we're really starting to pinpoint what it is that makes these films successful and what it is that makes them resonate with us personally, what makes it resonate with horror culture, and what makes it resonate with the world in general uh, as films. That we're, we're getting at some big ideas and some things that I think are going to be really interesting as we move forward in this and as we move forward in the podcast in general.
0: I don't want our pod to be a pretentious slog or to sound like one myself. I want
1: it to be a pretentious <laughs> slog. I'm going to but start publishing late. syllabi <laughs> for each season. But –
0: I, all that being said, I honestly feel like this is a master's class on the Haunted House subgenre, and I think we're teaching ourselves, and the movies are teaching us, of course, but I feel like I have learned so much about Haunted House movies in, in the process of doing this, and I, I absolutely love that, and I think it's been, it's been really exciting, and I hope our, our listeners have had the same experience.
1: I will never write a haunted house movie in which a little girl has a tea party with an imaginary friend.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. With, a,
1: with, with an innocuous sounding name. Yeah.
2: I, yeah. I do think it's interesting that we have gradually weeded out just about every conventional haunted house movie on
0: the list. Exactly. Yeah. We really have the, the Tobies are all all gone at this point. Yeah. Um,
2: the the Tobies, I like. I like that.
0: I don't. Th- I don't think we have any sheets being pulled off. Any any girls in their in their beds sleeping in their beds left hey, either.
1: Guys, I'm going to throw this out there. The Tobies would be a great name for the award show. <laughs> <laughs> the
2: the, the, the Tobies are like the Razzies of the Haunted <laughs> House.
0: <laughs> oh yes. So yeah. Even if we have another, um, you know, name for the main awards. We, um, will, we will give out the Toby Award. We're
1: going to give out some Toby. Yes. Yeah, we got to do that.
0: For the low lights. That's that's fantastic, Rich. All right. Well, yes. This has been a, an epic episode of March Mad Men. Hope you've all enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Adios.
1: Good night, everybody. Fucking A. It's 12 o'clock exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. The witching hour.
1: Yeah. See you fuckers <laughs> later.